This is Ben Weingarten for Encounter Books, and today I'm joined by one of those rare individuals in American political life who is still a Kennedy Democrat. Not to mention one of the most influential Democratic campaign consultants for more than 30 years, a founding partner and principal strategist for Penn, Schoen, and Berlin, and one of the co-inventors of Overnight Polling. His political clients include a litany of very prominent folks, New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, Governor Evan Bayh of Indiana, among others, and his corporate clients include AOL Time Warner, Procter & Gamble, and AT&T. Internationally, he's worked for the heads of states of over 15 countries, including most notably America, uh, under President Bill Clinton. He's also a Fox News contributor, co-host of Fox News Insiders, and I'm probably missing a whole host of other impressive things in his resume. The author of several books, including the latest one, Return to Winter, Russia, China, and the New Cold War Against America, I'm pleased to be joined by Doug Schoen. Thanks for joining us, Doug. Ben, thank you for a lovely introduction. So so the premise of your book, Return to Winter, which was released last year and has just been re-released, given how timely it is, uh, is that Russia and China are working together to undermine America's dominant position in the world in a comprehensive political, economic, and military way and a very strategic and, and thoughtful manner. Speak a little bit to the thesis of your book. Yeah, the thesis is that uh, if you look at the South China and East China Sea, you see uh, Chinese uh, adventurism. If you look in now the Middle East, at Syria, if you look at uh, Eastern and Central Europe, you see the Russians uh, undermining the NATO alliance and threatening uh, the Baltic states, all the while creating or help facilitating a refugee crisis uh, that uh, threatens to uh, further divide and uh, weaken uh, the Europeans and, I dare say, the Americans. So what we predicted in our book is sadly coming to pass. Yeah, so in this past year, the Middle East in particular, when it comes to Russia and Syria, has been the focus, and Russia obviously has its tentacles in Iran, and Syria specifically is an Iran proxy, and this week, or very recently, uh, Seymour Hirsch, who, not someone commonly cited by conservatives, but wrote a piece which was very interesting about Syria and its relation to both Russia in terms of its overall interest in the Middle East, and China with respect to the Uyghurs, who play a very important role as the Islamic supremacist group in China. What is the strategic interest in Syria specifically for Russia and China, and how should yeah. we evaluate their moves there? Well, th their goal, very simply, the Russians, facilitated by the Chinese, is to keep Bashir Assad in power and to maintain their naval bases. But I think it's a little bit more diabolical than that. Um, the more that the Russians help Assad, the more the refugee crisis gets uh, facilitated, the more refugees there are in Europe, the more divided our allies are, and the more the Russians are able to wreak havoc. And if you looked this week, as I'm sure you did, Ben, you saw that the Russians are now aiding the Taliban in Afghanistan under the same guys that they're using in Syria, which is to, uh, uh, quote, take on ISIS, which, of course, they're not doing. So uh, this is particularly uh, devastating to our interests, and with the failure of a robust American response and an incoherent policy, I dare say we're in a weaker state than we were when the book was first released about a year ago. 
Yeah, and to that end, Russia has been the main focus with respect to the Ukraine, Syria, and then, of course, getting involved with Turkey as sort of collateral damage with respect to Syria. And America's view of Turkey versus Russia is sort of muddled to begin with. China's action has mainly been in the South China Sea, but give us an update in the last year as to how China has flexed its muscles, perhaps under the radar, given that Russia is more overtly being aggressive on the world stage. First thing we have to understand is that the Chinese have supported everything the Russians have done, Um, uh, whether it be in Iran, whether it be in uh, Syria, and uh, whether it be... uh, with the North Koreans, there's been not a peep out of the Chinese. The other thing the Chinese have done uh, is to uh, build in, I think it's the South China Sea, the, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the, um, the, North, uh, the uh, East China Sea, I apologize, the Spratly Islands, which is basically they're claiming hegemony to some territory that they're creating off of Japan with a very, very narrow basis to make that claim. Uh, and they've also done everything they can to facilitate the Russian interests uh, with Iran, so uh, both in terms of energy and uh, uh, politics. So I, I, I don't see an area where their cooperation has in any way flagged, and indeed, if anything, it's gotten greater. Uh, on energy, the conventional wisdom, and of course in politics the conventional wisdom is almost always wrong, but the, the conventional wisdom was that low oil prices would put a serious crimp in Putin's regime, especially in combination with the sanctions levied on Putin by America. H- how has that played out in your view? Well, I, I looked to what Putin himself said in his end-of-year news conference. He said that uh, He's using the Syrian deployment as a military exercise, that it's well within his military budget, and that uh, it has been a successful venture so far. And while I think the sanctions have had some impact on the Russian economy, there's no sense that uh, the Russian uh, interest in what they're doing in Ukraine and in uh, potentially the Baltics and certainly the Middle East is in any way flagging. So I think it's possible that the sanctions regime uh, that the Europeans have put forward, particularly the Germans, could well end uh, after or be uh, reduced after the next six months. One one of the really pernicious areas in which your book has proven very prescient is on the idea of cyber warfare. And most notably this year, news came out, and God knows there's probably lots of news that hasn't been publicly reported or leaked yet regarding China's hack of OPM data on federal employees over multiple decades. What are the consequences of that in your view? And is America in any way countering these sort of actions from actors like the Chinese and the Russians, not to mention the Iranians? Well, yeah, I, I, I think the full answer to your question, Ben, is we know what America is doing. What we do know is that the Chinese and Russians, through state sponsorship, are seeking to undermine fundamentally uh, the uh, sanctity of American uh, confidential records. I mean, you know, there's a joke, which I don't think is a joke, that the Russians and Chinese may know more about Hillary Clinton's emails than we do. <laughs> um, but, but certainly, uh, the Office of Personnel Management of the State Department has been violated. Major corporations have been violated. 
And we just don't know what's going on. The difference is that these are, um, and, and indeed by the Iranians, we know state-sponsored acts all the while were trying to uh, reduce the sanctions on the Iranians and pay them hundreds of billions of dollars in funds that have been held back while they're trying to undermine our economy and undermine our well-being. Uh, ben, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, and, and of course, it's very timely because this week there was a report in the Wall Street Journal about Iran hacking into a dam in Rye, New York, of all places, which is should be a little uncomfortable for most people in the political establishment, given Rye's proximity to New York, uh, as well as the fact that there are a whole slew of American corporations who are now looking to do business with Iran uh, once the sanctions or some of the sanctions come off. So you write in your book, basically, and I'll quote here, the world superpower has no foreign policy, vision, or strategy, unquote. So how does the next president recover from the hole that we're in, especially given that, let's not forget, Barack Obama is a lame duck president, but he still has one more year in office? Well, a couple of things. First, we need to set out clear goals and objectives, what we're trying to achieve, what we're prepared to tolerate, and what we're not. With John Kerry, I think we've sort of seen that our goals and objectives have been do whatever it takes to get a deal with Iran and uh, don't confront anyone anywhere uh, and just keep trying to negotiate with people who don't appear to want to negotiate or are uh, disinclined to concede anything. I think the Russians and Chinese, uh, Ben, respond to one thing and one thing alone, power. And unless we draw lines in the sand that we intend to stick with, and make commitments about what we were prepared to do in terms of uh, the NATO alliance, in terms of ISIS, in terms of uh, Iran and North Korea, unless we are clear uh, and much more robust in our foreign policy, I think we are not only uh, going to lead from behind, but probably be doomed to fail. If you had the bully pulpit and you could speak to the American people uh, with one clear voice, where would you say we are most vulnerable as a nation? And more broadly, what do Americans need to know clearly and succinctly about the size and scope of this new Cold War, as you term it? Well, we are vulnerable to global uh, jihadism, radical jihadism. We have to make the case that the Russians and Chinese in their own way, whether it be through the um, uh, facilitating chaos in the Middle East and the like, or uh, encouraging uh, militants from uh, uh, caucuses to go and fight. The, the Russians and the Chinese are facilitating disorder. We have to make it clear what we will tolerate and what we won't, not that we are literally whipping boys for everyone and anyone who is seeking to undermine our interests. Yeah, and, and it's a great point that you make of the, the global jihadist threat being sort of a proxy which provides sort of plausible deniability for the Russians and Chinese, especially when you consider that the Russians, it's definitively been proven, backed to a large degree Saddam Hussein's regime. And even going back to the PLO uh, opposing Israel, Russia's always had their fingerprints there, yet our foreign policy establishment acts as if these are sort of discrete time periods and there's no historical linkage. Well, that's right. The Russian strategy has been always to promote stability 
and to undermine the United States. And if you look at what's going on, I mean, take Turkey. You mentioned it. Um, the Turks shoot down the plane. The Russians are very clear. They're putting on an economic embargo. They're refusing to talk to the Turks. And did you see uh, any response from NATO, Turkey being a NATO member? No. Did you see any response from NATO uh, when the jihadists uh, uh, went to the soccer stadium and the concert venue in France? No. So basically, NATO is a paper tiger. The Russians see that. And I predict in 2016 that the Russians are going to challenge NATO in the Baltics, and we'll see if there's any uh, United States or European response. Hmm. Well, we'll see if France has the strongest response, given that France called America weak when it came to the Iran deal, and that France declared war on ISIS, but President Obama refused to do so. Well, then what I would say is if we really are going to look for leadership next next year, we should talk to the uh, leader of the free world, President Hollande. <laughs> now, if you don't mind, I'd like to transition a little bit to the 2016 campaign. Uh, and sure, this is, please. of course, all, all that we're talking about on foreign policy in Russia and China in particular is very germane to this. So I'll start with the most direct link. What do you make of Vladimir Putin's remarks about Donald Trump? Well, I think Trump, in a certain sense, represents what Putin is looking for, somebody who believes he can negotiate, somebody who is probably not as sophisticated uh, as he, uh, Putin is. And what Putin is trying to do is just further create chaos in our elections. You know, he, uh, he <laughs> has endorsed uh, 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 Assad in Syria. He is... Um, uh, attempted to intervene both militarily and politically in Ukraine and Georgia, and now he's coming to the United States. And, uh, you know, I, I think it is largely what he said was tongue-in-cheek, but it's a larger point that he's trying to suggest that he can influence things anywhere and anywhere. So you think Donald Trump is sort of a useful idiot of Putin? I, I think in the formulation of Vladimir Putin, Trump is playing an important role to facilitate his larger purposes, and uh, I am discouraged and dispirited that this is happening. So on the Democratic side, um, the, the nomination process pretty much seems like a Hillary Clinton coronation process at this point. What potential legal roadblocks, if any, do you see tripping her up as we approach the general election, given that the FBI investigation into the emails is still ongoing? Well, look, I, we could speculate endlessly about what could happen there. I would only say for today, the president himself has said he sees no national security uh, challenges from the emails. I don't think she had criminal intent, but that's for the Justice Department to determine, not for me. That being said, in terms of foreign policy, she knows she has to be more hawkish. She knows she needs to distance herself from Obama, but I don't think she can do that until she wins the nomination, and that means getting through two states she's relatively weak in, Iowa and New Hampshire. In all of the polls, the, the probably the figures cited the most uh, show that Hillary's weakest point is on trustworthiness. Um, and honesty. Do you think that actually matters in a general election? Because it doesn't seem to hurt her at the very least against her Democratic opponents for the nomination. I think it does matter, but it's only one of a number of variables. I mean, we've elected people who are not fully trusted if they're seen as having other uh, criteria, like being a 
strong leader or being in touch with people. Uh, so I think Hillary can be elected with a trust problem, but uh, it's certainly an issue for her and one that she will have to address. Uh, if you were advising Hillary Clinton or, or any of the Democratic candidates, who do you believe poses the most serious threat to the presidency in the Republican field? You know, I think the answer to that is probably Marco Rubio. Uh, at this point, I don't see how he gets nominated, but I think he'd be the strongest general election candidate. Um, you know, right now, Cruz is within a couple of points of Hillary, as is Donald Trump. So I think she's going to face a tough election regardless. Um, but I'd say Rubio is probably the strongest. And I think he's got uh, been the strongest and best foreign policy from the perspective of my book, Return to Winner. And Politico ran a piece recently quoting several Clinton advisors, uh, Hillary Clinton advisors, including James Carville. And I, what I thought was interesting about it was that Ted Cruz was cited by uh, the Clinton team as as the candidate that they most needed to focus on and as someone who they want to frame basically as the most radical, hard-right conservative. But but they seem to genuinely fear him or, or view him at least as a formidable opponent, if not fear fearing him. What do you what do you make of that? Well, on one hand, he's very conservative. On the other hand, um, he is the best debater in the field. He's very facile. And I think he'll try to move to the middle um, and be both hawkish, but one who wants to protect people's privacy. But I think he'll also be very, very tough on Hillary. And I think he'll be very tough on Obama. So I think with swing voters in swing states, it's an open question whether they'll go for Ted Cruz, who's too conservative, or Hillary Clinton, who they have substantial doubts about. Uh, everyone has been waiting for something to cause Donald Trump to fall. But uh, amazingly, when you when you look at it, he's basically controlled the narrative on the Republican side the whole election, whether it was on immigration vis-a-vis -vis our southern border or Syrian refugees, etc., what do you think, if anything, can bring Trump down? Well, I think what most likely will bring Trump down is losing Iowa badly to Cruz, mm -hmm. seeing if he can recover in uh, New Hampshire, and then get to the southern primaries where he's polling well, but uh, it's an open question whether he can win. How do you explain, because you've been around in politics for decades and had experience with uh, all manner of primaries, how do you explain that in this election, the Republican establishment, really for the first time in decades, and in my, in my lifetime certainly, has failed to coalesce around a candidate more quickly? It's almost the reverse of every other election where you have the quote-unquote outsiders coalescing and the establishment field divided. How do you explain that? I would explain it simply. There's so much anger among Republican voters to the Republican establishment, but they've been saying that there's support for Trump, for Ben Carson when he was strong, and certainly Cruz, is we want those who were most disconnected from the Washington establishment. The more of an outsider you are, the better you do. Who will be winning on the Republican side in terms of delegate count by the conclusion of the SEC, the so-called SEC primary? Uh, look, I, I would bet either Trump or Cruz. I think you can make a plausible case for either one. The other issue Trump has is I don't think he's invested enough in the ground game to get voters out. But this may be an election where you don't need to do that. And do you think there's anything to the notion that we could really have a true brokered convention in 2016? I, I, I don't think it'll happen. I just don't 
and somebody will merge. But, uh, you know, it was a very different year, so I can, can't say never. Is there any one factor in 2016 that you think will have an outsized influence on the election that people are discounting or ignoring right now? The possibility of a recession. So you think economics may come to the fore over yes. the terrorist yes. fears? Yes, I think depending on what happens in the first quarter, first two quarters of the year, that will basically um, be pretty important for voters who look at the economy and say, do we stick with the Democrats or we go back to the Republicans? We've been speaking with Doug Sean and on his most recent book, Return to Winter, and also uh, getting getting to listen to the insights of uh, one of the greatest Democratic political consultants uh, in the last 30 or 40 years. Doug, thanks so much for taking the time to speak ben, to us today. Thank you so much. Happy holidays. And I appreciate a very, very thorough, comprehensive and interesting interview as always. Intro and outro courtesy of Kurt Vile's Freeway.